0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Material Matters with Grant Gibson. That's me. As regular listeners will know, the idea behind the show is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. Now at the time of recording we're still allowed out, although that looks set to change at any moment. So I'm delighted to say that today I find myself in the South London studio of the artist Polly Morgan, albeit at an appropriate distance. Now I think it's safe to say that since she started in 2004 the one-time English literature graduate and bar manager has been hugely responsible for the revival of interest in taxidermy, an art form more readily associated with the Victorians, hunting trophies and dusty bell jars. Morgan set about upsetting those traditions, creating dark but alluring pieces that often set her creatures in disorientating environments. In her hands, a prone and obviously lifeless bird dangles from a string attached to a single red balloon. A white rat can be found filling a champagne glass, and a stag's belly is filled with tiny bats. As one critic wrote, these are animals not restored to life, but so to speak resuscitated into their deaths. Her new show, entitled How to Behave at Home, opens at the Bomb Factory Art Foundation on the 14th of October, and features snakes that spill out of cast concrete and polystyrene containers, perhaps signaling a new direction for her work. Polly, thank you very, very much for doing this. Thank you. We always start by doing this. Can we describe your working environment for our listeners? What are we surrounded by here? <laughs> um,
1: well, I work in a former pub and I i got the basement. My boyfriend works upstairs in the nice architect-designed office and I'm down in the beer cellar. <laughs> but it um, <laughs> kind of suits me better because I make quite a mess and it can get quite smelly. We haven't done a lot of work to the basement. It really was just a beer cellar when we moved in and um, we've partitioned it slightly. So we've got one room. The idea of this room is that everything's supposed to be a little less dusty in here so that we can do, what well, I can do kind of fine painting work and stuff and varnishing. And then outside, it's just a kind of concrete floored cellar, very low ceiling, low hanging pipes that any tall guests bump their heads on. We've got a couple of big workbenches set up. One tends to be where I do, uh, if I'm skinning animals or anything like that, I tend to do it on that desk and it also has some tools and stuff on. And then the other one is for casting because increasingly I do a lot of moulding and casting and model making. So that's down the other end. And then we've just got a few shelves for storage and freezers full of dead snakes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> of course. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's been a very strange year. How's it been for you? Has the virus affected what you've been able to produce?
1: Yeah, I mean, to begin with, I found lots of friends, either without children or with grown up children, saying, Oh, what are you doing with all of this free time you have? And actually, the time I had had shrunk uh, significantly because I've got a four year old and a two year old, and the four year old had been at nursery and suddenly was at home all the time. So it was tricky because I'd just embarked on the work for this show. And then suddenly I saw that my working hours, which are five or six hours a day, Monday to Thursday anyway, shriveled up before my eyes. But at the same time, my boyfriends, a lot of the work that he was working on. He was very busy, He'd been traveling a lot until this happened. And suddenly all of these things were either canceled or put on hold. So we just sort of had to like tag team with the kids and give each other an hour on and an hour off. And um, I got back into it and got kind of a routine. And I actually started bringing my eldest son down to the studio sometimes and setting him up a little desk and he loves drawing. And we even did a few molds and casts together. So I kind of found a way to do it around the children, which was good because I've never done that before and I've certainly never really involved them. I mean, they're a bit too young to be too involved in the work down here and there's a lot of dangerous stuff. I did manage to work, but then also I think much more interestingly was that I suddenly realised my first thought when all of this happened was, oh, everything now has suddenly become irrelevant overnight. I didn't even know whether it was worth continuing with the show until I really started to think about what I was making and why I was making it and the kind of concept behind the work. And I realised quite how fitting it was. A lot of the work that I I was making, well, literally to look at it was snakes or parts of snakes confined in small spaces, kind of packed into small areas or spilling out of cracks or fissures and things or apertures and objects. The objects had been inspired mainly by brutalist architecture and also increasingly by packaging because I've noticed there's something about the packaging that things come in when they've got those kind of custom moulded polystyrene Mm. ends. They always have their own kind of unique architecture, which I find quite interesting. And I'd cast a few of them in the past and I'd been wanting to do something with them. I realised that so much of the work was about homes or about dwellings or places that we kind of build for ourselves that are supposed to be liberating in many ways. And then I feel like a lot of the time these places can come to constrict you in some way. And suddenly we were all locked up at home. And for some of us, it was heaven. And for others, I'm sure it was hell. It just gave a very different spin to my work. And I started developing new pieces based on, I was also, I couldn't go to shops anymore. So I was ordering a lot of stuff online. I was getting Amazon packages. when Once they started delivering again, I was getting packages with these polystyrene ends. And that started feeding into the work. It actually just took shape during lockdown in a way that I don't think it would have done.
0: That's interesting. So the new collection is very much inspired by lockdown, by the pandemic.
1: Some of it I had begun beforehand, but it took a different turning i think at that point right i don't think it's wildly different from what i would have made but i think it really focused my thoughts everyone suddenly was living their lives online and the thursday claps when you'd suddenly glimpse people through their windows and like i sort of felt strangely connected to all my neighbours mm. who i'd hardly ever even acknowledged before the title I'd lived with for a while, How to Behave at Home, I'd taken it from a book about etiquette, this 19th century, very prim book about etiquette. It was a chapter heading in that book. I think I'd started looking into things like that just because I was interested in not just physical constraints, but metaphorical constraints that we put on ourselves to make ourselves behave a certain way or essentially to kind of curb our basic instincts and to conform. And I started looking Uh, etiquette as a kind of metaphorical straitjacket and I like this title how to behave at home it sounded quite obscure at the time when I picked it and I liked the idea that it wasn't very clear and then all of a sudden we were all at home and living at home and having to find a new way to behave and my show just started to make a lot more sense to me. in that
0: So the phrase that stuck out to me in the press release that I was sent about the show is this phrase veneer as metaphor what do you mean by that?
1: I think that must have been referring directly to the title, perhaps, How to Behave at Home, and the idea that etiquette is a kind of metaphorical veneer that we all put on in order to pass in company and behave in a certain way. I realise that the skins of the animals I've been using all of this time are kind of a veneer too, because animals look a certain way for a certain reason. You know, like snakes are a good example, which I'm working with most of the time, in that they, um, they will very often say a, a non-venomous snake might mimic the colours of a venomous snake in order to deter prey. And that got me thinking about human behaviour and and how we use social media and, I mean, um, social media being a kind of update, I suppose, on the, the idea of etiquette. We sort of disguise ourselves in a similar way in order to allow a particular perception of ourselves to flourish so we will kind of curate ourselves online. And I was thinking just about this idea of veneer and how, as a metaphor, it's quite interesting And to using using veneers themselves. So I've used, um, in my show, I have things where I've used ply veneers. I've also started to use the techniques used in nail art. I've discovered the whole thing now. I bite my nails. I've never had my nails done. <laughs> Didn't know anything about nail art, but came to it because I was trying to mimic the skin of a snake called a sunbeam snake, which is really highly iridescent. It's impossible. To get iridescence from a skin once it's dry on a body. So Once I had made this difficult decision to do away with the skins in some cases and to paint directly onto the cast...
0: Yeah, can I just pick up on that? So so these pieces, the skins aren't actually on the pieces?
1: Not on all of them. Some of them there are And I kind of quite liked the idea that it wasn't always clear, you know, coming back to this idea of kind of disguising yourself or disguising the snake. It's not always clear which is real and which isn't. But in some cases it works better with the skin and others it just doesn't. the, The skins behave very differently once they're mounted. They will all lose their iridescence. That just goes because I think that's you require moisture in the skin in order for that to happen, for the light to reflect in that way. But some of them will keep their colour and they will dry quite smoothly. Others will lose their colour and they the scales kind of peel up and make a very, very rough surface, which is obviously, if you look at a rough surface, you don't think snake. Mm. So I decided to paint directly onto the casts in some instances this completely freed me up as well because i had been very limited by which snakes i could use because there's really only a handful of breeds that people in this country keep as pets and i get them all from right. pet owners or from snake breeders right. when they die they all die natural or unpreventable deaths they're not roadkill like some of your no, others no. <laughs> although i think someone did send me a picture of a Dead adder that they'd found on the road, but it didn't look in very good condition. I had to really seek out the snakes. I don't come across them in the same way, so I had to contact people who work with them in order to get them. But I get a lot of the same breeds. And for instance, I wouldn't take a venomous snake because the venom is still present. There have been instances where taxidermists have died skinning venomous snakes and slipped and it's kind of it's caught them. There's a couple in America I've heard about. If I'm painting directly onto the cars, I was free to just paint any pattern, any any type of snake I wanted. And that was great because there was a few that I'd become quite interested in trying to to recreate. One, I just for some reason became a bit of an obsession, the sunbeam snake, which has really highly iridescent skin. And I tried so many things to get this iridescent. You can get these kind of rainbow sort of holographic paints. You can get, I mean, literally sort of sticker kind of transfer type things that you put on them, but they were too thick. There were so many things I tried that didn't really work. And then Matt, my boyfriend, said he was sitting behind some girls on the bus who were discussing their nails and one of them had really like iridescent nail. And he said, you should look into that. So I went and got my nails done and talked to the women and the, um, nail bar about it.
0: There are a tremendous number of nail bars in the Peckham Rye area which is quite Yeah, yeah, so video, it was right?
1: exactly very near to me. It was easy. I just went around the corner and I talked to them about it and they were using this kind of dust that you can rub on which was great but unfortunately it obscures the colour beneath. So I then found that there's a transfer, a very very fine transfer which behaves in exactly the same way as the skin of the sunbeam snake once you put it on. It's such a faff to do it in the scale that I wanted to do it. I mean I have literally spent a year working on this one particular sculpture because I've every scale has to be smooth and you won't know this probably when you go to a nail bar they've they sort of file (laughs) the tops of your nail to make them as smooth as possible because all of these transfers and the varnish itself has to be on the smoothest possible surface in order to work properly so I found myself kind of manicuring the scales of the snake on these casts in order to apply one by one these transfers onto them and then to varnish them and uh After so much trial and error, it did work. By this stage, I got quite interested in what was possible with nail art because when you're model making, you use so many different materials and different paints and this was suddenly like a whole different avenue that I hadn't really explored. And I have started to use those techniques to create veneers on surfaces that I'm using plinths and shelves and things that I'm displaying the work on so some might look like they have marble veneer others like I've got a kind of plywood a chip foam lots of different things I've had quite a lot of fun doing that and, um, and incorporating that into the work yes so there's a lot of use in the show of literal veneers and metaphorical veneers
0: right why snakes in the first place? It seems a departure, doesn't it? Is it the lack of fur, I guess?
1: No, I think it was, I, I could tell you exactly the moment it all was sort of triggered in me, the interest in snakes. I'd been given a few and I'd had them in the freezer and I nearly said no when I was offered them because I just thought I i really have no idea how to do a snake. I instantly assumed that the traditional techniques where you build a body using very fine kind of straw bound in string. I instinctively felt that probably wouldn't work very well with a snake and I just wasn't really interested in using them at the time. But luckily I said yes and I put them in the freezer because I'd learnt to say yes to things if I could store them because I never really knew where my imagination was going to take me next and sometimes, you know, it's good to have other stuff there just in case. And I had had this really protracted period of, I guess you'd call it artist block, where I just... I don't know what was happening. Something had changed. My tastes had changed. I suddenly found I was making work. I think I'd kind of got into this strange habit where I'd started, I'd made my first few works and they'd become, a few of them had become quite popular and I'd sort of made similar works to that. There was a a few years of, of my work being very popular and of having a lot of people wanting to buy it, show it, come into the studio. And so I sort of got into this strange situation where I, I felt like i was almost an employee of myself where i would come to work and i would just make polymorgan artworks and then it's, all of a sudden i realized i was really unhappy with them and with what i was doing and i didn't enjoy the work at all anymore and i had to admit to myself that i didn't really like the work that i was making anymore and at that point i just i didn't really know what to do it was mm. just i didn't know what to do next at all because I'd honed the taxidermy craft. I got to a point where I was good enough to be making it myself, but I felt like I'd kind of exhausted it and it was really difficult. I carried on trying to make work through it and I did make some work through it, none of which is my best work, I don't think. And then I think I was just standing over my freezer in slight despair one day and I looking through what I had, trying to get some sort of inspiration. And I pulled these snakes out and they came out in these beautiful positions because I, I, at the time I was probably posted them or given them by someone. They would have been just dead and floppy and moving around in, in my hand as they do. I would have lifted the freezer, dropped them in like that, and they froze in the exact position that they landed in. I mean, because snakes move in a beautiful way, it's, it's difficult to make a, a bad shape with a snake anyway. But the, they looked beautiful. They were these really loopy kind of abstract forms. And I was looking at them thinking, this is the kind of thing that I want to make. I, w- I realized that I really wanted to be making abstract work or more abstract work than I had been making. It made so much sense to me why I had been feeling so blocked because it's very difficult to make an abstract work from a bird or a mammal or it, unless you're actually chopping it up and using little parts of it. Um, there's, no, there's only so many positions you can put a bird in. Whereas with a snake, there are these very long malleable they're just a it's a long tube and you can really manipulate it mm. however you like and i realized that i wanted to use it as a sort of sculpting material almost and not i wasn't really interested in showing the heads or even the tails particularly why not because it said snake as soon as you saw the head right. and it was and we have quite a visceral reaction to snakes anyway human beings tend to i think and then by having the the head on display i feel like it was almost a bit too confrontational and also I was definitely taking a conscious step away from the work sort of being about the animal in any way. So then I I was months of trying to make them look the way that they had fallen in the freezer pretty much. And I got there eventually. I developed a completely new technique in terms of mounting them, which was to kind of cast them in really firm rubber. I would freeze them in the position that I wanted. I'd, I'd first of all defrost them, put them in these loopy forms that I was happy with, I'd wrap them in cling film so that they held their position in the freezer when I put them in and then unwrap them, make a mold, make a cast and skin the snake and drag the skin over the cast. But in order for me to get the skin over it, I had to cast it in a material that was slightly flexible so that I could actually sort of open it up. And it worked pretty well. And then I mounted them on these plinths. They kind of looked like these slightly sort of modernist sculptures mounted on plinths of uh, marble and wood. And they were the perfect bridge, I think, into the work that I'm doing now because I hadn't lost all interest in taxidermy. It was more that I feel like whatever I had been doing at the beginning had sort of been done and I mm. wanted to move on to a different stage. So it's all
0: snakes now. You won't be going back to, to what you were doing
1: before? I don't think I'll ever go back to making work that looks like my previous work. I'd never say that I would never do it Like use a, a bird or a mammal. I'm, I'm sure I might if I come up with the right... Idea.
0: Presumably you still have a freezer full of them, right? I
1: do still have quite a lot, although I have <laughs> over the years. I've, I've sort of given some away and we had a big flood in the studio which got rid of about three of my freezer load of stock anyway. I've been using hedgehog hides a little bit but not making hedgehogs out of them or pulling the skin over a different form. And there's a couple of them in the show that I'm having. So I don't know. I I may go back. But right now I'm really enjoying the new, the kind of evolution onto painting directly onto the casts, and all of my painting skills have improved a lot because I've spent most of my days now doing that. And I've been really enjoying that. And I feel like there's still, I haven't exhausted the possibilities.
0: Good. Can we go into background? Yeah. Um, Because you grew up in the Cotswolds. Mm -hmm. I'm intrigued by the stories around your father. He bred animals and he performed autopsies on them when one died, I believe.
1: Yeah, there was one specific one I remember I witnessed, but he used to cut them open sometimes he yeah. to try and work out why. I, they weren't as autopsies, maybe a slightly too professional a term for it. <laughs> I think he'd just he'd just have a rummage around and try and work out why they'd died. So he had 200 goats at one point. He did at um, one point, yeah. And ostriches and
0: all sorts of things.
1: Yeah, not all at the same time, but yes, he had 200 goats. It caused lots of problems between him and my mother. So I think they managed to slim it down to maybe 30 or 40. He had llamas at that stage, and then he got a pair of ostriches. I think the idea was to breed them. It was during the BSE crisis when there was a time when people thought that ostrich meat was going to replace beef as the new... It's when John
0: Selwyn Gummer was feeding his child a beef burger in front of the cameras, right?
1: Right, exactly, that that period. And my dad was always looking for the next big business thing with animals. I mean, poor thing, he he was far too sentimental. He loved the animals too much, so he could never kill any of them. So none of them ever were killed. The goats were for their fur. And the idea was that the ostriches were going to be used to breed, because I think it's, it's a lot of money to buy mm. a pair of mating ostriches. Mm. Anyway, one promptly dropped dead, and that was the end of that, because um, he couldn't afford to buy a replacement, so I think he had to sell the other one. So yeah, we had an interesting house. There was a lot of animals running through it. There's
0: a story that I read somewhere that when your cat died, he didn't bury it for five days and he kept offering it back to you to say goodbye to.
1: God, I was quite candid in my 20s, wasn't I? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, he did. Dude, that is true. Yeah, he was really sentimental. He loved the animals. He was very attached to all of them, even all the goats. He found it very difficult to get rid of them. I mean, the goats, we would take them, whenever they died, they would get loaded into the car and driven to a local abattoir where they'd get those, I mean, I think my mum said it probably made into dog meat or something horrible. I remember doing that quite a lot, making that horrible trip where they, you know, one or two would have started to really smell by that stage. All of that must have prepared me for handling Mm. animals the way that I do.
0: You also had a friend at school whose father collected taxidermy. Mm -hmm yeah and you bred hamsters it seems there's a lot of stuff colliding it makes well, all sense of these that stories, you do yeah, you
1: do they're all me trying to make sense of it these yeah. stories that i've offered i think to journalists because i've been asked so many times why why did you do that what where did it all come from and i, I mean the <laughs> yeah, truth sorry, is, i doing it again no it's fine but the truth <laughs> the truth is i don't really know but people are always digging around well what about what did your parents do and where did? you and i was like so i'd sort of offer up these stories about animals which are all true and it's and i was surrounded by animals my friend's Father had a taxidermy collection, mainly fi- he was a fisherman, is a fisherman, and has a lot of fish mounted, but he also had some quite comical Walter Potter-esque kind of boxing mm. toads and things like that, which I found really amusing. It didn't occur to me at that point to do taxidermy, it was more that that was my introduction to it, because I don't remember having seen it until then, although I must have done it. was the first time that I really registered what mm. it was. Were you
0: making, was there art around the house? Were you good at school, that kind of thing?
1: I was, Um, But I wasn't, I didn't know any artists growing up. My mother worked really hard. She had about three different jobs just to make ends meet, really. So she was a secretary. She used to work as a teaching assistant and she delivered flowers. Looking back, I think if she'd had the time, if she'd been able to be a lady of leisure, she would have gone to galleries a lot, I think. Because she would try, like whenever we'd have a trip to London or something, we would go and see a big show one of the museums, it was definitely something that she was interested in, but she just, I don't think she ever had the chance to explore it because she was just raising three kids and having to work. And my dad, I don't remember him having an interest in art at all, but actually the making side probably does come from him because he had a little tiny little workshop in the garage and it was where he would always retreat to and he would always be knocking things up. He would constantly be offering my hamsters new little houses or he'd be making little runs for them and it was a way for him to kind of de-stress to make stuff again, you know, I think if he'd been able to if he'd had to like financially was able to kind of sustain himself he would have done something like that Mm. probably. So... I think it was there but it was very much lying dormant in the family and we I I used to make stuff all the time but I don't I can't say it was any ever any good but whenever I see my eldest son doing it now like if ever he sort of goes off into his own little world for a minute he'll just start picking up pens and paper and doing stuff and making stuff and I think I was very much like that but I wasn't directed I didn't really have anyone kind of directing me with anything or saying you know perhaps you'd like to do this with clay or it was very much just making up as i went along
0: you've got two older sisters are they artistic as well or
1: uh well my eldest sister was she certainly did well at art in school i remember that probably better than i did i think but she hasn't pursued it in any way no i'd say they're not not really Uh, my middle sister was a lot more sporty and she's a journalist now she's a reporter for itv and editor in fact sorry and my elder sister's now she works in a school so no not something Um. they've really they will go to the odd Exhibition, They're not completely oblivious to it. But it was was me, I think, who got that bug.
0: You didn't go to art school, famously. No. You studied English Lit at Queen Mary University, London. Did you have a sense at that stage what you wanted to do? Was art anywhere near your compass at that moment?
1: It was always there. It confuses me as to why I didn't do it. Weirdly, I enjoyed acting as a kid, which I can't think of anything I'd like to do less now. Um, (laughs) Why is that? I just don't like being the centre of attention, really. I think... I think I have an ego and I think my work is, I I'm, I'm, i I'm—I like to stand behind the work. I want the work to speak for me and then I can kind of hide. Whereas acting, there's too many eyes on me, I think. I find that uncomfortable, but I've, I've always made myself do things I'm very uncomfortable with. So I remember I had drama lessons every week as a child and I never wanted to go to them every week. I'd be dreading it, but I would always go and I would always sign up to the new ones, which I find is quite strange. I think I felt that it, instinctively it was probably quite good for me to bring me out of my shell so So i went on to do drama. the shyness kind of kicked in around 16 i think and then i did an a level in theater studies it made so much more sense to do art because i loved art and i would have spent all the time i could in the art room but i just you know when you're that age you don't really know what you want to do and i did theater studies and i didn't particularly enjoy it but at that point i think that meant that i couldn't go on to study art anyway because i didn't have an art a level I was quite academic and I think I'd, I'd been sort of pushed in that direction. Everyone assumed I'd be better off. My parents weren't pushy at all, but they would say, my mum would say, probably better to do something that you can use in lots of different jobs. I was good at English. I really wanted to come to London. That's all I cared about at that time, just being in London. So I only applied to London colleges and I got to London and university was just such a blip for me. I I went, I turned up to all of the lectures, but I barely spoke to anyone. I didn't make any friends. I got this job in a bar and that became everything to me. That was my social scene. And So and why was
0: that? I wonder what happened at university?
1: Nothing happened really. I just, they weren't my sort of people. I just didn't really meet people. When I say I had no friends, that's not quite true. I did have one friend for a bit, but she drifted off. I think she dropped out. But a lot of people warn me university in London's tougher you don't have the whole campus life mm-hmm. thing which i think was true there was a lot of londoners there and they were very cliquey there was like there was big gangs of people who all seemed to know each other already and i've never ever really operated very well in a group i'm not really someone who has groups of friends or even i think of the fact that i've sought out a career path where i work alone um you know even like sport wise the only exercise i would do would be running something i could do alone i just didn't find it very easy to penetrate that side and i didn't i wasn't really that interested in it i didn't really like the things they were doing i found it very boring and i had to get a job to help pay my way unfortunately i chose this bar in east london that um i'd gone for a drink in with my one friend from university And I just left my details with this barman who's now the godfather to my son and I'm still great friends with. And he just took my details and said they'd call me and they did and I got a job collecting glasses and I stayed there for years and I'm all my friends really, everyone I've ever met, even Matt, I met through there.
0: So this is the Electricity, electricity. I'll try and pronounce it correctly. Yeah, the Shoreditch Shoreditch Electricity Showrooms it was called. In East London. I mean, it's funny because Shoreditch keeps cropping up in various of these podcasts that we've done in the last year and a half or so. But you were there kind of at the turn of the millennium and um, we were just talking, I used to drink in there very occasionally. But for the listeners, can we try and place what that bar was like and what Shoreditch was like at that time?
1: Well, it was completely unrecognisable to what it is today because I think there were two bars, the Shoreditch Electricity Showrooms and one called the Cantaloupe. Cantaloupe, yeah. Yeah, and oh, there's the blue, what was it called? The Blue Note, I think it was called, wasn't it? And Jackson then it became Square. blue. Yeah, mm. um, so maybe three, but that was pretty much it. Um well, when I suggested going for a drink with this friend of mine before I left my CV there, the reason I'd gone was because I'd heard that they were serving absinthe there and I wanted to try it with her. Um, and everyone I knew was saying, why are you going there? You know, well, we don't go there, go to Soho, go into town. It's strange, there was a sort of a gravitational pull and I, I always thought it was all chance, but I don't think it can be really because I got there and I just felt really at home in that environment and it it was just full of people who were either artists or photographers or fashion designers Everyone was just starting out. What became known, or I suppose they were known as the YBAs then. They were all sort of settled in that area. They'd um, because they had cheap warehouse space. There was a lot of old um, buildings that were were really really cheap at the time, which you know they all kicked themselves they couldn't afford to buy at the time, mm. and now worth millions and millions. It was just a really exciting, fun time because there was so much happening, and everyone was seemed really supportive of everyone. And yeah, it really felt like a moment you don't really appreciate it when you're in the middle of it. It's only when you've got a little bit of distance and you look back and you think, wow, you know, and I knew this person and that person. And, and I look at the careers and the things that the people have gone on to do and it was nice to think that we were all kind of there, like spurring each other on at that time. And then, of course, most of us left because it just changed so much and it became Soho, I suppose, in a way. <laughs> and we were all priced out and people had families and we all sort of moved further east generally. Mm. But, um, yeah, all over the place. I'm in touch with so many people from those days.
0: So you're there, you're working behind the bar, and then, well, taxidermy, how did this happen?
1: I didn't want to be a bar manager. I ended up managing the bar after sort of working my way through all of the other positions, and that wasn't my aim to be a bar. I really was enjoying it. It was a great time. I was only in my early 20s. We had so much fun. I never really had to pay for alcohol. We were always staying on late and drinking with friends, and uh, it was perfect for that time in my life, but I knew that that wasn't what I wanted to do. And I was conscious of the fact that I would have to decide on that at some point or make moves in a certain direction. And everything I was drawn to was in the creative industry. So I tried, I did a photography course. I I was always like drawing. I had loads of inks at home. I was always doing drawings. But I knew lots of really successful artists. And I everywhere I looked, there was like a really famous, successful photographer or a, a famous painter. I was inspired, but I was also that feeling yeah. you get, I think, when... You can feel a little bit paralyzed, I suppose, by how many successful well, people who are doing well in that field there are around you. I felt like, what can I possibly offer to photography mm. or to, to painting? I don't, you know, I'm definitely not as good as that person or uh, no better than that person. I just didn't really feel like there was much point in me pursuing those things, and they didn't really grab me. And I feel like I literally must have somewhere in the recesses of my brain had a kind of checklist I was going through of everything. And a taxidermy, I got to taxidermy somehow. <laughs> um, because I was, when I was made manager, I was allowed to live upstairs in the flat. now. I got a free flat on Hoxton Square to think that that came with the job, but it did. And it was a really nice big space. I'd gone from living in a flat share in this tiny little bedroom to having my own flat to furnish. So it's the first time I'd really thought about space and filling it because I had nothing at that age. And I wanted taxidermy in it. And I had a very specific idea of how I wanted it to look. And I really remember a conversation with a friend where I was saying, where can I get this from? They said, well, people don't really make taxidermy to look Mm. dead. They they make it to look alive. That's the whole point. You'll have to commission a taxidermist to do it. And I said, well, I can't do that because I haven't got the money to do that. And they said, well, why don't you do it yourself? And it was literally just that line. Why don't you do it yourself? I thought, well, why don't I do it myself? Do people still make it? They must be making it still. I didn't know any taxidermists. So I just started researching it. And that was like really early days of even the internet and Google. And I remember borrowing someone's laptop and like typing in taxidermy lessons and finding this guy in scotland who was a taxidermist george
0: jameson yeah, and yeah. having
1: a one-day lesson with him and it kind of changed everything on the train on the way back i just felt i was completely buzzing thinking this is so exciting i i just wanted to do it again immediately and then i didn't i realized i had no dead animals and i didn't want to kill anything so i then had to sit tight and wait for something to die and <laughs> to be passed on to me and then i just started doing <laughs> it on my kitchen table
0: is that the only training you've had in taxidermy
1: well i had more than a day because i'd go back and see him right. um but I, it was I probably went back about four times the first year, sometimes for a couple of days. I think eventually I took a week off work and did a whole week up there with him. But no, it was pretty remote, the training, in that I'd come back and I would practice. George has always said to me, you just need to do as much of it as you can and just keep making mistakes. And every time you make a mistake, you'll learn from it. And I was really impatient at the beginning. I just wanted to be good straight away. And I found that really frustrating. But he was right. I mean, that's the only way I learned every time I made a bodge job or something, I would think, ah, okay, I know what I did wrong there. So did you get
0: through a lot of animals in the first instance in that
1: case? I mean, I had a lot knocking. I didn't chuck them all out. They would sort of be propped on something around the flat. I had a lot knocking around, and then often the moths would see to them eventually. But uh, yeah, I suppose I must have done in order to get good at it. I had an idea for something I wanted to make quite quickly, probably within the first year, and I was describing it to a friend who was an artist who um, also he had a gallery that he was going to put in um, the zoo art fair that year. And as soon as I described the work to him, he said, well, if you can make it by this time, I will put it in the art fair. So that really galvanized me. And I went and visited um, George and did it alongside him. So to start with, my skills weren't up to scratch when I was making my first works, but George was really helpful with that. I would literally take the animal up, do it next to him on his bench, and he would say, oh, hold on that's slightly wrong or do it this way.
0: And what did George make of the kind of taxidermy you were planning on making, I wonder?
1: He was quite baffled by the whole thing, I think, <laughs> but very sweet, never very non-judgmental about it all. And very honest as well, That you know, it wasn't really his cup of tea, it's not what he wanted to do, but um, good luck. And sometimes he would have a moment where he'd kind of cock his head and go, oh yeah, actually I quite like that. I think he found it quite amusing and he's a very, he lives his life in quite kind of hermetic way. And I think he really enjoyed just having the odd person coming and like sitting next to him to chat to every now and then. So we struck up quite a nice friendship and I still call him and chat every now and then.
0: There's a quote from you that I like where you say, my nature has always been to go in the other direction to where I think everyone else is going. I think underneath it all, I'm quite competitive and I don't want to stand in a big crowd. So I'm guessing taxidermy suited that quite Mm -hmm. nicely. There there wasn't a huge crowd of people doing taxidermy.
1: Yeah, I, I often think that. I mean, that wasn't the sole reason, definitely not. There was a lot more going on than that. I loved... I had never been very interested in science at school because the way that they would talk to me at school was we would sit down and someone would be drawing and stuff on a blackboard and I can't really learn like that. I'm very visceral, I like to touch and smell and I was always very envious of friends who got to, to skin things and cut stuff up and um, it just awakened this interest in biology in me. I was kind of destined to be a sculptor, I think, rather than a painter. Even now when I'm painting, I'm painting solid objects. I like to hold things and to feel the materials. So when I said that, I was being slightly flippant, but it's not untrue, I don't think. Like I was saying before, I would look around and there'd be 10 successful photographers sitting in the bar chatting to me. And I didn't really want to go in and compete. I thought, I I want to do something that's mine. I also realised that taxidermy was quite an untapped medium. It was used by a lot of artists. I have contemporary artist friends who've used it in their work, but they would use it, you know, as a one-off in one piece and then move on to something else. I didn't think anyone had really... Well, I can't say anyone. I'm sure there were people doing it that I didn't know of, but I didn't know of people who were kind of bringing it up to date or just modernising it. I had no problem with traditional taxidermy, but I felt like, again, that's been done. People have done that very well. There's plenty of people still doing it very well and there was no need for me to kind of enter that area.
0: I read somewhere that somebody asked you to taxidermy a human. I think it was on the Messam's website. Is that Mm, true?
1: Yeah. Who knows whether they were serious or not, but... I sort of instinctively felt they were just because it was such a long email and it was really beating around the bush for the first five paragraphs and then finally got to the point. But yes, they did. They said that they wanted their grandmother. There was this long winded preamble about their grandmother and how loved she is and how she lives with them. And she spends most of her time in front in this particular chair watching television Um, And she's getting on a bit. but She's got a great sense of humor. And she's always joked about them having her stuffed and put it put in that chair so that she can live on with them. And it was always just a family joke. And now uh, they've actually started to take it seriously. And they're wondering whether this is actually a possibility. And if so, what would they, you know, would I be interested in doing it? Unfortunately, I don't think I even replied to it. <laughs> <laughs> I told George about it and he told me that apparently you can get a license to do this, I think, because he had once been approached by the family of a Hells Angel who died in a motorbike accident and he had a huge tattoo all over his back and they wanted the skin from his back um. flayed and mounted onto a cam- like stretcher bars or something. And they contacted George and he said he looked into it and he would got permission and then he said he suddenly was struck by the idea that he was going to have a man's torso delivered to his desk and he panicked and said, no, sorry, actually, yeah, I'm not going to do it." I can that. see
0: that. Russell T. Davis wrote a Doctor Who character that's basically just a, a large stretch of skin as a kind of satire of the cosmetic industry. Can we talk a little bit about the process, Polly, of, yeah. of taxidermy? How you go about taxidermy a creature?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's so many different ways. The way that I was taught... Well, when I say there's so many different... There's different variations, there's not loads of different ways, but because taxidermists don't tend to work together... They tend to work in isolation, certainly in this country. So there's not really like one particular way of doing it. Someone like me will go and learn from someone like George and I will come back and I will use his techniques and then I will slightly change this or that to suit me. So it's interesting. That's how, if you're a specialist, if you were to scan or uh, dissect a piece of taxidermy, I suppose that's how they tell um, which taxidermist did it because they will have their own like little ways. But essentially, when you're doing a bird or a mammal, you are, first of all, you're, you're skinning the animal. Once you've skinned the animal and you've got the body beside you, you then have to deflesh the skin, which is quite time consuming in most cases. Um, That's because you can't have residual flesh or fat on the skin, otherwise it will uh, most likely rot. So once you've done that, you then have to tan the skin. If you're doing a mammal, it's a question of making three different chemical bars and putting the skins in those in order to effectively turn them into leather. For birds it's much simpler process because they've got much thinner skins. I buy something called a bird tanning solution which I just paint on which I think is just a few chemicals dissolved in water that's sort of moth repellent and salt and then that's about it. And then you have to build your body so you've kept the body that you've taken out of the animal so you have this kind of flayed body in front of you and you tend to put it in the position that you want your final mount to be. Sometimes that's very straightforward with a bird it's pretty straightforward you can just sort of hold it move it around and measure it with a mammal particularly a big one that's a lot more complicated you have to sort of put wires and things through the legs if it's standing up for instance then you in most cases you will then um build a body from the way that george taught me was to to use this stuff called wood wool which is very fine straw like the stuff they kind of pack crockery in which can actually be quite a good sculpting material you bind it with string so you make it quite tight, but it's still penetrable by wires, and you can kind of make little sausages and bits and add them all on, and you're kind of building up the musculature and everything like that. Um, and calipers are very useful to kind of to measure the actual body the whole time because you really need to, to get it as close a fit um, as possible. The worst thing you can do is build a body too big because the skin won't fit around it, and and even if you manage to stretch it around and stitch it up, for a bird, for instance. You can do it, you might get the skin on, but then the feathers will never sit in the position that they want to sit in because they just physically can't, because they they can't really move on the skin. So that's really crucial. Uh, If you're doing a mammal, mammals, larger ones, tend to be a bit more uh, labour-intensive making the body because you sometimes have to have a sort of wooden frame on the inside to make it stronger. And then you run wires along the... If it's a bird, I keep the wing bones and the leg bones in, run wires alongside them and then bind something around that. You can use lots of different things, but I use something called hemp, which is used by plumbers to insulate pipes. Bind that along there to kind of make up for the flesh that you've stripped off. And then you glue the head into the skull of the bird, because again, you've kept the skull and you've cleaned around it. Pack out all of the brain and flesh that's been removed in the eyeballs with clay. Push the wires through and sort of lock them in by... Ending one end and pulling them back again and then it's a question of stitching up the incision that you made at the start and arranging all the feathers and with birds it's crucial to arrange feathers because you can do all of that and it will look terrible at this point quite often because the feathers are all pointing in different directions but you have to fix it to something at this point and then spend a lot of time with a pair of tweezers trying to arrange the feathers in perfect alignment um, and at that point, normally you will wrap it in a bit of cling film or or again, some taxidermists will wrap them in string to hold them in place while they dry. Because as the skin dries, it sort of acts like a shrink wrap. All the moisture is removed from it and it starts to sort of, it shrinks over the body that you've made. And at that point, the feathers will start to move around again. So you need to hold them in place that you've put them. Hmm. And mammals, essentially the same thing really, but um, a little bit less arrangement with the fur. The fur tends to be a bit easy. You wash the skin at some point during this process too, generally. You
0: alluded to the fact that you had this burst, very quick early burst of success your first pieces which included a lovebirds looking in a mirror were shown at the opening of a restaurant called bistra tech i think uh, where you were spotted by banksy he invited you to do santa's grotto which was his annual exhibition mm-hmm. near oxford street he then did the piece rest a little on the lap of life which was the white rat in the champagne glass which was bought by vanessa branson was there a plan did this all just kind of drop into place?
1: No, I mean, I feel a bit embarrassed saying that it, it dropped into place and there was no plan, but there wasn't really. In some ways, it was amazing luck that all of those things happened and I can't take credit for all of it. I was in the right place at the right time, I think. I had friends through working in the bar and living in Shoreditch. I knew a lot of people who were either making art or showing art. So you know, you can be the best artist in the world, but if you're living in the middle of nowhere and you don't know who to show it with, particularly back then before Instagram, Instagram has changed everything mm. and for just the internet generally, because your work can be seen, but I was able to show things or at least talk to people about what I was doing very early on. But in other ways, it happened a bit too quickly. I, I definitely wasn't ready... My skills weren't quite up to scratch, as I said. I mean, I did the best I could, but I'd go up to George and he would make sure that things were good before I left. But I think if I was rewriting it, I probably would have given myself a lot more time in obscurity to make lots of mistakes and make work that I didn't think was so good. And I was so unrealistic. I mean, at that time, I had no idea how any of the art world worked or uh, nothing. I knew nothing about it at all. I just knew the people working in it, but I didn't know how it operates in terms of sort of the markets and auctions and all of that stuff, nothing. So I was extremely naive and I would just make stuff and put it out there. And I didn't even really edit it very well, I don't think. If I look back and I think there's some things I just shouldn't have shown, they just weren't really good enough. But I just sort of, I finished them and I would just take it off and display it. And Because I had no planning, because I wasn't expecting this to happen to me, because I didn't even really, I didn't know enough about even the people I was showing amongst to start with. I had a lot to learn very quickly. And I, I think I'd have been in an exhibition or maybe it was when I, um, Vanessa Branson bought the work and I was installing it and she had these two alcoves and she was putting mine in one and a Grace Grayson Perry pot in another I was looking around her house and seeing all these huge name artists and I just sort of felt suddenly really quite self-conscious and a bit kind of humbled by it all and it felt a bit weird that all of this was happening to me I didn't feel I justified it and I still don't think I, I did but luckily I took that on board I think and at that point I sort of retreated a little bit and worked a lot harder and I felt like I had to if I was going to get these kind of opportunities, I had to really deserve them. I felt like I was going to get a tap on the shoulder at any point and someone say, you know, out. <laughs> this, is, this is a mistake.
0: This comes up quite a lot in various things. Some of the clippings that I read, the BBC Four documentary that you did, and also your YouTube channel, where you talk about these moments of doubts and crisis and insecurity. And you said in the BBC Four documentary that you feared waking up one day and everybody thinking you're a... Fraud. You're did a I? Fraud. yeah.
1: God. Yeah, and I'm just... I don't think it's imposter syndrome, though. I think it's true. I think it just wasn't good enough, some of it. I mean, a lot of people go to art college for three years and they get kicked out. You know, they go and they have to do these crits where they show work and people will tell them it's terrible and they'll go home and cry and they'll have a... And all of those things, <laughs> they're probably very painful to go they through. but broken, which yeah, we talk
0: about in one of your... your yes, films.
1: and I, so I think I do, yeah. And I, I don't know how well I would cope with that. Certainly now I don't think I could do it. But um, I didn't go through that process and it made me a bit naive and probably a little bit arrogant in the beginning. I just didn't really... I wasn't giving any of it enough thought. I'm trying to redress that now, and I've been trying to redress it ever since. And I, maybe it's a little bit of imposter syndrome, but at the same time, I I am definitely my own worst critic, which I think is quite a good thing to be your own worst critic. In some, well, I don't know. I mean, it is in it is in terms of putting out the best work, but maybe not in terms of success. I, I do know that the most successful artists, I think, have like total self belief and they don't really doubt what they do it can help propel you to success feeling that way. So
0: that's quite interesting because obviously, as you've alluded to, you live with Matt Collishaw, the renowned artist. Does he have total self-belief?
1: No. No, but he's worked really hard. He works very, very hard. He works harder than most people I know. No, he doesn't. He has some belief. He's very like me and I think that I will get to that point when I might have a lot more self-belief and I'm getting better. It is getting better, but that's because I'm working my way through it and I'm just working really hard. And some artists are naturally just extremely gifted and they don't. perhaps they don't have to work that hard and they have total self-belief because they are just very, very good. But there's others who maybe aren't so good, but they're very good at just convincing everyone around them that they are. And it can take you a long way, I think, that if you've got that kind of charisma. But I'm not one of those people. I don't think Matt is either. And I think our way is to sort of work our way through it. Matt will just decide on something he wants to do and then he will just buy every book on the subject. He will read every book. He will just know everything about it. I, I sometimes think it's almost so that you can't be caught out at any point down the line, so you really do know it very well. He's been quite inspiring in that way. I've sort of seen how hard he works at things, and definitely in the beginning I was, I expected things to work out first time far too much, and I've realised that they tend to work out on the sort of 15th time.
0: I'm always intrigued by couples that are from the same kind of professional background. My parents were both doctors and they come back after a day at the surgery and fundamentally talk medicine over the dinner table. I mean, That's it's, not us. Well, I was going to say, do you, do you and Matt talk, talk contemporary art? <laughs> no. How does that work?
1: No, we never, hardly ever talk about it at all. Um, no, I'm, we do. We don't really talk about it. We don't, we're we not kind of critics, particularly. Matt will talk about it sometimes, or he'll say, oh, you know, I think it might help you to look at it. He's, his art His historical knowledge is quite sort of encyclopedic whereas mine is fairly sort of in its infancy still so he's very good at saying I think this this and this artist would, would help you he's good at pointing me in the right direction in that respect I'm more likely to talk about the materials or like you know the problems I'm having with certain materials and trying to work my way around that with with people we talk about our own work we do talk about that quite a lot you know he'll talk to me about ideas he's having about things and I have a lot of input on the stuff that he does and. He's always the first person I show my things to, but we don't really talk about other people or other art much at all. We're not—I um, think people are often quite surprised by that, but then none of our friends do either. Most of our friends are artists working in the arts. It's the last thing we want to talk about. I have met artists who talk about it all day long, and I find them a bit boring. To be <laughs> <laughs> We're not that serious. We t- we tend to sort of talk nonsense.
0: Taxidermy—I was digressing there. I'll, I'll return to taxidermy. Must have given you a kind of huge insight into anatomy, I'm guessing. I was intrigued by the effect that a burst appendix had on your work. And you developed gangrene, <laughs> yeah, I believe. Did, and that show, I think Endless Plains, was based on the host-parasite relationship. Yeah. Uh, you had a stag uh, and with a hole in its undercarriage and mm. inside there were hordes of bats. That was based on your, sort your experience.
1: Of. It was, again, it was a kind of starting point. Yeah, it definitely. Um, I was in hospital for a couple of weeks. I was really seriously ill. I really nearly died. I was on sort of cloud nine for a while afterwards when I realized what a near miss it had been and just feeling well again. I kept thinking like how weird it was that a part of me had died and effectively rotted inside of me. And that did kickstart a kind of train of thought. It had happened just after I got back from the Serengeti. We'd just been on a safari. I'd always wanted to go on safari. And one of the reasons it got so bad was because I assumed it was food poisoning. So we'd been to a seafood market in Zanzibar just the night before we came back. So I just assumed it would be food poisoning. And so did all the doctors. It got to such a bad stage because we'd kind of dismissed it early on for that. And the Serengeti, one of our guides told me, meant endless planes And that then became the title of the work, as I was thinking about. And I had been interested in this for some time, I think since I took a photo of a rotten blackbird with maggots swarming all over it. I always wanted to make something that everyone felt was very ugly, turn it into something quite beautiful and try and challenge that a little bit and look at it in a different way. Because something dies, and yes, it's sad, it's a death, but then it always becomes a host for thousands of new lives. So that's what the, the picture of the blackbird had been about, and that's kind of what the stag... Stag had been inspired by a dead wildebeest I'd seen in the Serengeti and it had been hollowed out by vultures. It looked effectively like a wildebeest lying down until you got up close and you realised there was a big cavity in the stomach and it was completely hollow on the inside. So I had this idea of making this kind of endless plane inside with concealed mirrors so it looked like it went on forever, this kind of bat cave inside it. So it was a combination of that trip and then the subsequent illness and then the show shortly afterwards.
0: Mm. I'm intrigued. Does your audience always understand what you're trying to do It seems to me that our culture has become far less nuanced and people's attitudes rather more militant. Mm. There's been a huge rise in veganism since you started. You've had death threats in the past, I believe. Mm -hmm. How how do you cope with that?
1: Well, I don't think I'd cope very well if it happened a lot and it doesn't happen much at the moment. I had a few emails years ago with someone sort of saying that they knew where I lived and they were coming for me, but they were also badly spelled and they came at weird times in the night and I just felt that they probably weren't in the same country as me anyway. And I thought, if you know where I live, you probably want to frighten me and tell me where I live so I kind of I managed to rationalize it but um but yeah it's not it's never pleasant that kind of thing I've tried to always be as vocal as possible to head it off by explaining that these animals aren't killed I eat meat come and get me for Mm. that animals are killed so that I can eat them but they're not killed for my taxidermy and I think it's perverse to kill something and then try and make it look alive again and I don't think it's necessary because there's plenty of things dying that you can get your hands on it's just a question of getting your hands on them so I just have to try and be quite hardworking in that respect you know in that particular part of my work so yeah i don't enjoy any of that but um i i just don't get it very much anymore and yeah. i think people have other concerns now that they're probably trumped animal rights at the moment so as long as i steer clear of um, them and maybe I'll, I'll be safe i don't know but yes i do i agree with you that we are becoming there is a lot less nuance and that's partly what I talk about in this show is the idea that we're becoming what we're contorting ourselves in more and more into these kind of impossible positions where we're trying to please everyone and not offend anyone and it's it's not possible and you, you know you can see it's not possible there's a collision of rights where one right sort of trumps another right and then there's a clash and then someone's suddenly cancelled and and it's it's quite distressing to watch actually again that's kind of what is feeding into my work the idea of these the the snakes are almost to me they look almost like hernias you know like something that's been kind of that's bursting out that we're trying so hard to keep it down and it's just going to pop up somewhere else
0: I've taken up loads of your time Polly so final question really about the future Mm. you once said that you imagined yourself living in the countryside with a load of dogs Mm. Uh, is that still the case?
1: yeah it's something I'm always sort of trying to head off because I I think if (laughs) if if I relax then that's exactly what would happen so I'm fighting against it still We rent somewhere in the country that we go to when we're allowed to, like lockdown or not. We go there at the weekends and we spend the the school holidays and stuff there. So that's kind of cured my country longing a little bit because I get that and then I get to come back to the city. Um, But I'm sure inevitably that's how I will end up at some point, yeah.
0: Very good. Polly Morgan, (laughs) thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank
1: you. It's been lovely talking.
0: To discover more about Polly's work, go to pollymorgan.co.uk. How to Behave at Home runs at the Bomb Factory Art Foundation in London from the 14th of October to the 2nd of November. There are images from the interviews as well as little films and other things on my Instagram page, Grant on Design. And guess what, people? I have a new website. You can find all the podcasts I've done, sign up to my newsletter and lots of other stuff at grantondesign.com. If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. If you feel so inclined, you can go to my Patreon page and make a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. You'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Thanks so much for listening and please stay safe and well.